G'day everyone, great to see you all, great to see some men backing up after last night, I can't get the smell of smoke out of my hair since uh, the fires up at our snack men night, it was a great night, but now let's pray as we look at uh, this somewhat strange part of God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your spirit of truth that we read about in 1 John before has spoken so clearly through your scriptures. And so we thank you that all scripture is breathed by you and all scripture is useful for teaching us, for rebuking us sometimes, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. And so we pray that your word might do that work in us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Australia used to be world-renowned for the stability of our democracy. We elected prime ministers and then on the whole we were reluctant to get rid of them. Uh, but do you remember a few years back we became a bit of a laughing stock for the way we seemed to churn through our Prime Ministers every five minutes? We had Kevin Rudd, then we had Julia Gillard. I'd forgotten we had then Kevin again for about 80 days. Uh, and then we had Tony Abbott, and then we had Malcolm Turnbull, and then we had Scott Morrison. And at the time, the English press loved making fun of us. And I remember there being a, a headline at the time where Australians wake up every morning and the first question they ask is, who's the Prime Minister today? So there's something of a uh, sense of justice at the moment to see what's happening in England with their PM lasting half the time that Kevin lasted on his second run. Uh, But I think part of the frustration with politics in general is when a new person takes over and nothing changes and it's exactly the same as the old guy. There's plenty of change in the personnel but no actual change in the policies. Uh, That is nothing new in the world though. It's not like that is a modern phenomenon in modern Australia and and in modern England. And in our chapters in 2 Kings today, we're actually in chapter 14 and 15, so have your Bible open to be able to scan across the two. You actually get a sense of that same monotonous turnover of leadership in the history of Israel and Judah. It is just one king after another and worse than that, one bad king after another. And so what we're seeing in these chapters is what I think of as the the slow-motion car crash of Israel. Uh, You read about each king, you are willing them to be the one who will turn back to God. You're willing them, you know, like we saw in our kids' spot before, to be the one who, who will be God's promised king. You want them to be, but it's like the car is on a wet road and the brakes are locked and God's people are just inexorably sliding towards his judgment. Now, of course, these chapters are interesting history. Sometimes, you know, you sit as they're read and you think, oh, gosh, they're, they're obscure, aren't they? But, you know, they're interesting history. Uh, and we can sit in judgment and look back and, and learn lessons about bad leadership. But actually, these chapters are written for us, the scriptures say. Uh, and I want us to see today that they are a warning to never forget the promises of God, like the people of Israel did. And they are warning to never presume on God's grace like the people of Israel did. So let's get into it. My first heading is King Amaziah of Judah versus King Jehoash of Israel. And this is verses 1 to 22 of chapter 14. So we just read about King Amaziah before in chapter 14. And he starts off like he's one of the better kings of Judah. Uh, That's the southern kingdom, if you remember. So come with me to verse 3. It says, he, Amaziah, did what was right in the Lord's sight, which is a great start, isn't it? I wouldn't mind if someone said to me, Phil did what was right in the Lord's sight. Then Daniel, down in verse 5, it tells us he goes and brings to justice the people who'd murdered his father, who'd assassinated his father. More than that, though, and this is really unusual, he does it with justice. 
He doesn't take revenge. You see, in the ancient world, in fact, the modern world for that matter, uh, people love to take, to go over the top in their revenge. You killed my father, I'll kill your whole family is sort of the way it goes. But no, he obeys God, God's law and he actually just punishes the men who did the crime. Uh, so Amaziah is starting really well. And even what he does down in verse 7 is a positive moment. Go down to verse 7 where he goes and, and destroys the armies of Edom. Well, Edom has always been the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. They'd stolen this land off Judah back in 2 Kings chapter 8. So Amaziah was reclaiming the land God had given to his people. That's what God's kings are meant to do. At this point, we're thinking this guy's all right. But actually, from the very beginning, there are warning signs that show us that he's not going to go as well as we might think. Go back to verse 3. It says, he did what was right in the Lord's sight, but then it says, but not like his ancestor David. He did everything his father Joash had done, yet the high places were not taken away, and the people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. See, Amaziah did some good things, he himself, it seems, worshipped God rightly in Jerusalem, at least to start, but he wasn't like David. You have to remember, David is the yardstick against which all the kings after him are judged. And you see, what did David do for all his faults, for all his sin? What did David do? He worshipped God rightly and he did not tolerate idolatry. He did not tolerate false religion. He, he didn't just worship God correctly himself, he led his people in following God. So yes, Amaziah did some good things, but he let false religion carry on in Judah. I love in history how different kings get given titles. I've been reading a, a, a history of Europe at the moment. It goes through all the kings throughout all of history. You know, there's Richard the Lionheart, and then over, over in the Muslim world, there was Suleiman the Magnificent. I sort of think that's a pretty good title to get. It was John the Black Prince, and you can guess what maybe his character was like. I would call Amaziah, Amaziah the Half-Hearted. That, that would be his title, Amaziah the Half-Hearted. And God is not interested in half-hearted disciples, is he? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will gain life. Wholehearted devotion is what God desires and more importantly, what God deserves. And in fact, half-hearted disciples end up going one way or the other. This is just reality. Half-hearted disciples end up either becoming wholehearted disciples or ceasing to be disciples at all. So what happens to Amaziah, the half-hearted? Well, he gets too big for his own boots. He thinks, I've wiped out the Edomites. Now let's have a go at Israel. Let's have a go at the northern kingdom. Look at verse 8. Amaziah then sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us meet face to face. That, that phrase there is a euphemism for, come, let's have a fight. He's not wanting a cup of tea. He is challenging Jehoash to come to battle, to, to come to war. Now, politically... This was a really stupid thing to do. The reality is Israel was generally always bigger and stronger than Judah. It had more people and so therefore it had bigger armies. So this was politically stupid, it was militarily stupid, but worse than that, it was also ungodly. Edom and Aram and all those other countries they've been fighting about for all these chapters, fighting with for all these chapters, were the enemies of God. They were the enemies of God's people, but as hopeless as Israel was, they were still God's people. 
You see, Israel and Judah were meant to be brothers, not enemies. Uh, You see, it's interesting through 1 and 2 Kings, even when Israel was at its worst, the good kings of Judah would go to their aid. The good kings, none of them were great, but but the passable kings would at least recognise Israel and us, we're meant to be one. We're meant to be brothers, not Amaziah. As I say, he's gotten too big for his boots. In fact, 2 Chronicles tells us by this time he'd totally given up on God and was worshipping idols. And so Amaziah of Judah calls out Jehoash of Israel for a fight. Now Jehoash is no godly king himself. Don't think he's very impressive. Uh, He is one of those kings of Israel who was doing evil like all the rest. So look back to chapter 13 from last week, verse 11. This is a description of him and his kingdom. It says, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, but he walked in them. So it's not like Jehoash is a good guy. You've got Amaziah the half-hearted versus Jehoash the evil. That's, that's what we've got here. But to his credit, he tries to talk Amaziah out of this. He says, you realize you're a little thing. He tells that whole parable when the point's pretty clear, even if it gets a bit convoluted. He says, you're a little thistle. I'm a massive cedar. You realize I'm going to crush you. Don't do this, brother. That's what he's saying to him. Don't do this. But Amaziah is like that little boy who thinks he can keep taunting the bigger kid. I remember this. I was the bigger kid at school eventually the bigger kid has enough and flattens him. It's what happens. And sadly, Jehoash does not just flatten King Amaziah. That would have been right and just. He does something awful. Look from verse 13. It says, King Jehoash of Israel captured Judah's King Amaziah, son of Joash, son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash went to Jerusalem and broke down 200 yards of Jerusalem's wall from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. He took all the gold and silver, all the articles found in the Lord's temple and the treasuries of the king's palace and some hostages. Then he returned to Samaria. I hope you see why this was such an awful thing for a king of Israel to do. See, that is what you do to your enemy. That's what you do when you defeat Damascus. That's what you do when you defeat the Edomites. You, you go and destroy their gods and you destroy their temples. But this was the city of his own God. And this was the temple of his own God, in theory at least. This was the king of Israel destroying the God of Israel's city and even worse, looting the God of Israel's temple. This is just another in a long list of horrible moments in two kings. But what's interesting here is nothing happens to King Jehoash. He doesn't drop dead on the spot. Remember those stories earlier in, in the Bible about how if a person even touched the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, they dropped dead. And if, if people would go into the temple inappropriately, they would drop dead. He, nothing happens to him. He goes home and he actually accomplishes things. And, and yes, he eventually dies, but, but he's buried in glory with his fathers. No disgrace. And worse than that, the northern kingdom of Israel, despite this horrible sacrilege, actually thrives for a while and so my next heading is the answer to that question or asking that question which is why do the evil thrive why do the evil thrive and I want to show you this so now we're going to go beyond where we stopped our reading before we're looking at all of chapter 14 and 15 so come with me to chapter 14 verse 23 chapter 14 verse 23 so here we meet the next king So this is Jehoash's son, he eventually dies. His son Jeroboam II 
takes over. Now, the very fact you would name your son after the king who started idolatry in Israel tells you the trajectory he's on. Uh, And Jeroboam is the most successful king since Solomon. He reigns for 41 years. That's a long innings in, in terms of these kings. And he reclaims all the territory they'd lost over the years. So look down at verse 25. It says, he restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. And then go down to verse 28. It says, the rest of the events of Jeroboam's reign, along with all his accomplishments, the power he had to wage war and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah. Now, none of those place names mean much to us. But if you look at this map, it shows you a little bit of what happened. So if we bring the map up on the screen... You see, on the left, uh, is it the left? Which way are you looking? Yes, the left is where Israel and Judah were before they, they lost some extra territories. They lost some there on the bottom of Israel. But you see all that part that I've put a red line around? That's where Jeroboam expanded the kingdom to. So, so here is this evil king who goes and, and, and destroys God's temple and yet for some reason he thrives and his son thrives and they actually do better than anyone else. Israel had not been such a legitimate world power since the time of Solomon. That's how successful Jeroboam II was. And here's the problem, go back to verse 24, chapter 14, verse 24, look at the description of Jeroboam. It says, he, Jeroboam, did what was evil in the Lord's sight He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that he had caused Israel to commit. See, Jeroboam is not a good king. He's still worshipping golden calves on mountaintops, as the first Jeroboam had done all those years ago. This king is evil, and yet God blessed his reign. And we say, how can that be? We say that that doesn't seem fair. And we've actually seen this all through one and two kings. Sometimes the bad kings get what they deserve, but generally they don't. Sometimes they do, but often they don't. Sometimes the better kings, I say the better because they're, they're not good, they're just better than the bad ones. Occasionally they do well, often they don't. There just doesn't seem to be any way of knowing whether something's good's going to happen or bad's going to happen. But I want to say to you, isn't that true of all history? Isn't that true of all history? Often bad people get away with it and and even seem to to sort of do better than the righteous people. Whereas faithful people face hardship and faithful people face struggle and and sometimes never prevail. How can that be? Why does God let that happen? Well, it is a reminder to us that often justice does not come in this life. Justice does not come often in this life. And in fact, it is a real mistake to judge things, to judge God's favour, if you like, on the basis of how well people are doing in this life. Sadly, many Christians do this. They look at good things happening to someone and they assume, well, that is somehow God's blessing. Or that is God justifying their life or justifying the, the course of action they've taken. Or that when they look at bad things happen to someone, they assume they deserve it. It must be God's curse on that person. It must be what they deserve. We must not do that. Sadly, in our fallen, broken world, this side of Christ's return, evil will often prosper. Will not prosper into eternity. Justice will come. But this side of Christ's return, evil will often prosper. The faithful will often suffer. We mustn't judge people, we mustn't judge history on the basis of how things are going at that point of time. 
So how do we understand history? How do we understand what's going on here? Well, my third heading. We can only understand things through the lens of God's promises. See, we only understand any events through the lens of God's promises. You see, why did God just not knock Jeroboam off his throne? Why, why didn't he just knock him off his throne? It was because back in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, you can look it up later on. Back in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, God had promised his great-grandfather Jehu that he would last four generations on the throne. You see, he said to Jehu, because you did what I asked and destroyed the even worse line of Ahab, I will give you four generations of ruling Israel. And God keeps his promises. But more than that, look at chapter 14, verse 25 again. Go to chapter 14, verse 25. It says, he, Jeroboam, restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, the word the Lord, the God of Israel, had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai from gath Hepher. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was no one to help Israel, neither bond nor free. However, the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven, so he delivered them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. I love this for two reasons. First of all, that prophet is Jonah, by the way. You know, Jonah and and the fish and Nineveh, this is him in the history of Israel, where this is his less famous bit of prophecy, if you like. But do you see how God made this promise out of grace? He made this promise because he loves his people. They didn't deserve it, but he made this promise, even though so few of them loved him. Remember back at the time of Elijah, there was just a few thousand, but God made a promise through Jonah out of compassion for his people. And sometimes God does that. He uses then evil people like King Jeroboam to bring about good in the end, to fulfill his promises. And this is the point here. And we need to remember this as we view history, whether biblical history or just any history, we are not God. We are not omniscient. We're not all-knowing. We're not omnipotent. We're not all-powerful. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you can understand everything. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that when you see blessing for a person, that, that you can judge why that is, or when you see suffering for a person, that that means you understand why that's happening. In fact, it's often the opposite. It's only God's word and God's promises that we need to let interpret history for us. And as Christians, we have some wonderful promises to help us make sense of our experience. One of the most wonderful is the promise of Romans 8. We looked at it in our gospel team uh, on Wednesday night. Look at Romans 8, 28. It's on the screen. At least it will be. Maybe it's not. There we are. It says, we know that all things work to good, together for the good of those who love God. Now, that's not a promise that only good will happen to those who love God. In fact, the opposite is true. There's another promise of Scripture that those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer and be persecuted. No, but what it is, is a promise that God uses everything that happens to us for our eternal good. That God uses everything to ensure that his children who he calls will be glorified. That we will be there that we will, will be a part of his eternal kingdom. It's a promise that the God who did not even spare his own son will not fail to give us everything that he has promised us. 
That's the promise. That is the truth that enables us to deal with anything that happens in this life, good or bad. There's one more promise that I want to see. So come back to 2 Kings 14 and now chapter 15 for my final point, which is God's promise of final judgment. See, there's actually a promise of God that undergirds the whole book of 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, And it went all the way back to Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, just before Israel entered the promised land, God said to them through Moses, I'm giving you this wonderful land, it is yours, and if you just keep my covenant, if you just keep worshipping me and following me, it will be yours forever. But if you break my covenant, if you turn away and worship other gods, eventually I will judge you. If you turn to idols, I will judge you. You will lose this land I've given you if you do not turn back to me. God promises a righteous judgment. You read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30. And that is actually what we're witnessing in these chapters. I called it before a, a slow motion car crash. What we're witnessing is Israel doing exactly what God warned them against. And so they are just sliding towards that judgment have you noticed that repeated line for each of the kings of Israel it intentionally says it exactly the same way each time which gets monotonous as you read it but that's intentional so it was the same line for Jehoash then for Jeroboam the second it says each time they did what was evil in the Lord's sight and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam that is the sin of idolatry we'll just turn now to chapter 15 Come with me as we fly through these kings. Look at them there. First of all, you've got King Zechariah. Look at verse 9. What does it say? He did what was evil in the Lord's sight as his fathers had done. He did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Then there's King Shalom. They would have said that about him, but he only had a month before they assassinated him. That went well. Then there's King Menahem. Look at verse 18. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight throughout his reign. He did not turn away from the sins of and then King Pekahiah, look at verse 24, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Then King Pekah, look at verse 28, he did what was evil. And it is monotonous. It's just one after the other. And because we know what God had promised back in Deuteronomy, we know what is coming. We are waiting for the judgment of God to come. And here's the thing, the only reason it hadn't come at this point is because of God's grace because of God's grace God gave them chance after chance to turn back to him and they sat there complacently thinking things are going well aren't they look at our King Jeroboam look how successful he is we're going to see next week God's hammer finally falls on Israel now it's easy to look back and sit in judgment on them why are they so stupid I mean God sent them prophet after prophet to warn them he sent the greatest prophets of all Elijah and Elisha to warn them it's easy to stand in judgment but our world is actually in exactly the same position as Israel was back then right now our world is like a slow motion car crash sliding towards God's judgment thinking everything is okay people go about their lives as if the world will go on forever when actually the hammer is ready to drop God has promised that Jesus will return to judge the world. The Apostle Paul, preaching in Acts, it'll come up on the screen, Acts chapter 17, said, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day 
when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And the only reason that day has not come, the only reason that day has not come, Jesus has not returned, is exactly the same reason he let king after king go by in Israel. The only reason is because God is gracious and he longs for people to repent and find salvation. Look at what God says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is what this time we live in exists for. But so many people are like Israel in the time of two kings, oblivious to what is coming. So what are we to do with this? Well, firstly, for us who know and love the Lord Jesus, let's not be complacent. Let's not ourselves be people who are half-hearted. As people who know God, as people who've come to know Jesus, let's not get distracted by the idols of this world. Let's live in the light of God's promises. Let's live knowing the promises of God. And what does that mean? What does that look like? It means to live not chasing after the things of this world. It means to live storing up treasures in heaven, as Jesus put it. It means to live not here, living not for here where things will burn away, but living for eternity. And then finally, let's love our world enough to warn them about what is coming. Without Christ, people are just sliding inexorably towards judgment. That is the reality for our world. Let's play our part in inviting them to come and find the hope and the salvation that we have found in Christ. That is what we must do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these chapters of the history of your people are so sad as we look at the way they had all of your promises and yet they turned away and refused to turn back in repentance. Father, we know that like judgment fell on Israel, judgment is coming for our world when Jesus returns. So we pray that we will live in the light of that, clinging to Jesus, living for him, but also proclaiming that message of hope to our world that doesn't know it needs it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.